Hey there, I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. And welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast, where we talk about getting started in real estate, scaling, and we give you the inside scoop about our day-to-days as full-time investors. Interested in learning how to double your cash flow without the headache of turning your property into a hospitality-based short-term rental? Introducing Midterm Rentals. Register for our self-guided midterm rental profit academy course, where we walk you through step-by-step how to identify, analyze, furnish, market, and self-manage a midterm rental. Sign up at womeninvestinrealestate.com slash mtrprofitacademy and use code podcast for $50 off today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Wire podcast. Today, we have Jesse Vasquez. We're super excited because Jesse does a ton of stuff in the midterm rental industry, a lot of things that we, Amelia and I, aren't great at. So we're excited to hear about everything that he does. Jesse, do you want to give us a quick backstory of how you came to be in the midterm rental space and in real estate? Yeah. First off, I want to say thank you, ladies, for having me on here. I really appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing with the women that you guys work with directly. So kudos to you guys. I really think that you guys are onto something great. So my name is Jesse Vasquez. I am a real estate investor, and it still sounds weird for me to say that out loud. I'm a YouTuber, and I still feel weird saying that too. And I got into midterm rentals sort of by accident. I worked in healthcare for 17 years, and I saw all over California in Southern California that there was clinicians that were coming into the, you know, into these markets and they had these really cool Midwestern accents. Uh, and that was what really drew me to them because I'm from California. And and as you guys can tell, like most people say, dude, bro, and man, which I say pretty often. So I don't know if you ladies want me to call you dude and bro and man, but <laughs> I go I, by um, dude or bro. I can, okay. I can get down with that. You can get down with that. All right. Yeah. Cool. We identify as dude and bro. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet dude. So anyway, there was this, this one gal, her name was Barbara. And she, I remember, I remember standing at the, you know, the, the nursing station. It was like one of those really dimly lit, like yellow fluorescent light stations. I don't know if you guys have those over where you're at. And I heard this accent. And I'm like, where the heck is that? And she was saying like, don't you know? And then she said, it really drew me. And she said, yeah, people from the, from the Midwest tell each other they love each other by saying, you know, watch out for deer. And I was like, I need to talk to this woman. So I ended up talking to her and she told me she was a travel medical professional. She was staying at Motel 6, which was like this crappiest motel in the ghetto in Modesto, California, where I was at at that, at that time. And that's really when I started to realize like, holy smokes, there's these travelers that are coming all over the place. I worked in the healthcare division. So I saw this like firsthand. I talked to these clinicians and that's when I started deciding to invest in real estate. So in 2015, I bought my first property. I was 34 years old. So I didn't do this like, you know, you, you ladies are very young, which is awesome. And I think this is so cool. I didn't get started until I was 34 years old. So yeah, it was just that one need, that one opportunity that I saw. And I went and knocked on the HR department's door of the hospital. And actually, I didn't knock. A quick little story I'll give you. And this is for everybody to take this as an example of like me having this very determined drive. A nurse went into the HR department door and you know how like in these hospitals or in these, the doors swing like very close, they close slowly. I stuck my foot in right as the door was going to close. Like if you like think about a movie scene, like somebody sticking their door, <laughs> their foot through, that's exactly what I did. And I opened the door and I just went in and I talked to them about, you know, I saw Barbara, she's on the hospital floor. Do you guys have any other clinicians? Like she's staying in a, in a, in a prostitute ridden drug infested hotel. Like how do I help somebody like Barbara find housing? And that's when I got connected for my first contract. And actually I got the contract before I even bought the property, which was awesome. Oh, I love yeah, that. <laughs> and I had to go through crazy loopholes to buy the property because I didn't have enough money saved. I had to sell a truck, my only vehicle that I had. 
So real estate was very difficult for me to start off. In fact, like none of my family believed in me. They thought I was freaking crazy. Why would I buy something for clinicians? Like this is dumb. Why would you do that? So I had no support from anybody other than my own vision, my own thoughts. So, you know, I think that's really important if you're very clear on what you're doing, like despite the negative noise around you, like still focus on building that. I mean, I think this is what you guys have that's great is that you empower other women and people to collectively come together when they might not necessarily have the resources and or the uh, support of family and friends. So I think it's so incredible to have a network. So I wish I had that, you know, when I first started, started off. Yeah, so thank you. My origin story. Yeah, we actually hear that a lot that people don't have a support system in their real lives. Like a lot of their real estate investor friends, they've found online. So yeah, yeah, we're thankful for that. But for that very first property in 2015, how did you like? That's so long ago. Sorry, <laughs> eight years ago. Like that's yeah. crazy. How did you even know where to begin? Like pricing it, furnishing it. Like NTR wasn't the big buzzword back then, like it is today. So. What even made you like think of that? I mean, other than you were in medical industry. Yeah, well, I just I just saw that there was so I worked in the Bay Area. So just so you guys know, like San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, San Jose, all these big cities. And then I covered part of like Los Angeles, Orange County. And these problems weren't just uh, Northern California was Southern California. This is happening all over the place. But when I talked to Barbara, she kind of sparked something into me where I asked her how much she was paying for Motel 6. And at that time in 2015, she was paying $3,000 for literally one room. For a studio in a shitty, sorry, in a crappy place. I don't know if I can cuss on here or not. Yeah, we're explicit. Uh, absolutely. We're, we're oh, rated so explicit. $3,000 is like renting a, a very, 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 very nice house in Iowa, like luxury today. You know, I need to move to Iowa then because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's well, even 3000 back in 2015, where I'm where I live, a three bedroom, two bath would have probably rented for like maybe like 1600 bucks. So for me to like, that's where my brain was like, holy crap, I can like literally buy something right now and put Barbara in here and make, you know, $1,000 a month, which back then was unheard of per door, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the crazy part. So for me, that was just sort of, I'm, I, I decided like, I'm going to go all in, I'm going to buy a property. And at that time I had 20, like $24,000 saved up. And I bought this 2012 Toyota Tacoma. For those of you listening, like Toyota Tacomas have the craziest resale value. It's like the one truck that doesn't lose value. So in those three years, I literally was able to sell the truck for what I bought it for. And I took the $10,000 that I had and I used that to like buy the property and then furnish it. So I literally didn't have a vehicle other than a company car. The company that I worked for at the time gave me a car. I mean, I had a car, but I, I sold my only my only vehicle that I had that I owned to be able to get into real estate. I think sometimes you have to take those desperate measures. And at that time, like nobody really knew what was going on with real estate. They didn't know if the prices were going to go up or down. It was kind of like that upside down world, right? If you guys watch Stranger Things, like nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening. But for me, I just knew that I already had a contract. I already went in and had this, this discussion with the HR department. And the pricing came originally from that $3,000 single room. And I went in there and just shot a number $4,500. And they were just like, okay, we have clinicians that are actually coming with their family. So this would be perfect. We'll put the family into that property. So the first group I ever hosted was for eight months and it was a doctor, his wife and two kids in a three bedroom, two bath property. Wow. So, an eight month contract. That's killer. Yeah. I was actually, it started off as three months, but they extended because they were going to, they were, didn't know if they were going to stay in the city or not. They extended it for three more months and then they started trying to buy a house. So they ended up going eight months in that property alone, which was amazing because my mortgage was $1,900. My taxes, all that stuff was $1,900. Um, and then my water sorrow, sewer garbage electrical was about 500. So I was all in, you know, 2,500 bucks. So I was cash flowing $1,500, a little bit more than that, actually, I think probably right around 2k on one freaking door. And that was like I said, unheard of back then. 
Yeah, because also if that was 2015, I think like the first time I used Airbnb was like 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. So especially back then, that would have been like mind blowing. And one other thing I want to ask about is Amelia and I talk about all the time. We've only been doing real estate for a few years. You've been Mm -hmm. doing it longer. When you go back and tell that story, is it so crazy to think like, oh, oh, remember when $10,000 was make or break it? Or like, remember (laughs) when this was the thing that was holding us back and to now look at where you're at now and be so appreciative and be able to see what you've accomplished. And I want you to also give a snapshot of where you are at right now in terms of your of your portfolio and your business. Yeah, I wake up every morning and I pitch myself like, is this real life? Like, I'm not kidding. Like, this is truthfully like what I do when I wake up. It's part of my morning routine. I wake up and I'm very grateful to first off be alive because I mean, if we weren't alive, then what would we be doing besides probably like floating in heaven somewhere uh, walking around on on gold streets? But (laughs) I just first off, I'm super grateful for it. And yeah, the first the first $10,000 like that was you know, just right now, I'm, I'm just kind of reminiscing about thinking about it in my mind. And it, it was a lot like it was a, a very big sacrifice to be able to pick up a property like that. And I think a lot of new investors have that mindset of like, I'm going to do everything I can to get involved in this space. I mean, I went to my family and asked for money. Like, you know, a lot of people tried to borrow money. I didn't know about other people's money at all. Like I thought maybe I can just ask my parents or and they didn't they were like, this is not a good idea. This is dumb, which is what led me to sell my to sell my vehicle. But I think that's what you have to do sometimes when you start off, like you have to take these risks. And sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't. And I think real estate is a long game. And I always thought that from the very beginning, and I still have that property today. So for me, you know, it was really mindful to make that move. And if I didn't make that move, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. And now I have 14 properties. Um, I'm actually onboarding a 30 unit building too. So I'll have 36 units here in the next here pretty soon. But just with the properties that I have, we're grossing over a million dollars a year on 14 properties. In fact, 10 of our properties are doing a million. And the other ones that we have are, you know, those are, I'm just, I'm just kind of giving you a synopsis. Of, of what it what it looks like because I have short-term rentals too. But most of the units that I have, I would say about 80% are occupied through midterm rentals and the other 20% are short-term. So yeah, I mean, we're doing about $80,000 a month in gross revenue. After all is said and done, we're probably taking home about 40,000 a month. And that's just on the, you know, on the real estate side. But keep in mind, I've like created a business out of this real estate. And I think that's where a lot of people don't necessarily understand what the medium-term rental space is because it's a very, it's not passive in any way at all. In fact, we were just talking about this before, like I've never been so busy in my life. And that's not, I'm not exaggerating that because it's a lot of moving parts. But luckily, I'm to the point now where I can hire teams. And you mean, when you talk about $40,000 net a month in revenue, that's pretty awesome. But I don't touch any of that money. Like that money stays and we just use that to buy more properties. And that's how I was able to build, you know, this business over the last, you know, eight years, seven years is because I didn't spend any of that money. I, you know, I invested, I made, you know, 24,000 in the first year, like that was actually 24,000. I just used that again to buy another property. I just kept doing that every year, just buying a new property. Um, wow. So yeah. that's amazing. Do you own all those properties by yourself or did you do what most investors do, which is run out of your own money eventually and then have to partner? Yeah, I own all those myself. This 30 unit building that we're doing, I'm actually partnering on that. But yeah, everything else is owned by myself. And yeah, it's a pain in the ass to <laughs> to do. And I didn't realize that I could partner with people. Like I always, I've always been like a lone wolf in a lot of ways. Like I felt like I don't want to partner with people because what if we just didn't get along or what if something, you know, I always had that mentality, but I realized over about two years ago, like in order to actually start to grow, you have to bring people in. You have to start connecting with other people and you have to create relationships that are going to be long lasting. And a lot of ways, real estate and, and partnerships are deeper than like marriages because it goes, mm-hmm. it's so involved and there's so there's money involved and there's just people that can, you know, there's different certain whenever there's money involved, people are different. So for me, it's always like, 
you know, when I partner now, I need to make sure that it's the right person that I have long, you know, a relationship. I know that we can have longevity over time. And I know that they're, I know what they're about. You know, I know what their thought processes are. And I know what their um, integrity is like. And I think that's really important for people that are, you know, getting in the space. So I was going to ask what made you realize that you had the aha moment with midterm rentals, but you literally skipped long-term rentals, went straight into midterm rentals. Like that was how you found out about real estate. So what would you say are some things that are really different in your business because it's a midterm rental business than somebody who's listening who does all of long-term rentals? Like what are the differences? What are the changes they'd have to make? Yeah, I never had long-term rentals because my parents had long-term rentals and I watched them as a child like lose a lot of their long-term rentals. I came from a very Catholic household. So my parents were super forgiving. Uh, so they had people that didn't pay rent and they would just be like, oh, they'll pay next month. And literally my parents were going to court like every six months. And I remember sitting in the backseat of a court as a child, like listening to these things. So subconsciously, my brain all of a sudden, when I found this opportunity, it was subconsciously like a I'm trying to get away from long. I didn't want to have tenants that could have rights. I'm in California and you can give your house away like literally for free to somebody if you wanted to, <laughs> if you don't tenant screen them right. So I think that that was kind of like a burned thing into my mind that I, and I didn't think about it. Like until I got my first contract, I, I started kind of processing that and realizing that I didn't want to have tenants that didn't pay up front. So for me, the difference is, you know, you have to do a lot more legwork, long-term tenants, you know, you just do a lease term, you do a background check, you throw them in there and they stay and you check on them every, you know, few months. And then that's kind of it. But with, with the midterm space, it's very, especially if you start off, it's very anti-passive. You're reaching out to companies and this is what I do because there's a lot of different ways to get involved in the medium term space. But for me, it was, I saw the contract side. I worked in healthcare on the back end business development side. So I knew about contracts. That's actually what I was, what I've been doing for 17 years. So it came super natural to me to create relationships, connect with people, and then, you know, obviously go for an ask, like, here's what I do. Here's how I operate. So it was very natural for me. So again, the biggest difference is that you have to do a lot more work in this space, as opposed to the long-term side where you just kind of get a tenant, you place a spot. But here's one thing I want everybody to realize that the reason why people that have Airbnbs make so much money or midterm rentals make so much money is because we're taking the risk when a long-term uh, landlord will, can essentially have somebody there and fill vacancy for a year. Us as operators are taking that risk that the average daily rate is going to go higher because we're risking the fact that we potentially can have vacancy. And a lot of times people don't have that mindset to be able to shift from that, but that's the exaggerated amount that we make is based off the, the the vacancy that we could potentially have, which a lot of us do get to a certain point. So, you know, I have people that hate on me. They're just like, oh, you midterm ramp, blah, blah, that's dumb. Like it's not, you know, that's not everybody. Everybody can't do that. Everybody can do that, but you have to take a risk and I have a high risk tolerance. And for me, you know, there's educated risk where you go in and do a lot of legwork to figure out what's going on in the markets and how you, the best way to serve and operate is. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's why we make pretty decent amount in this, in this business because of that, that factor. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I'm not sure if our listeners know about you, because we haven't really touched on it yet, but you also focus heavily on insurance clients, which is something Grace and I actually don't really do. I mean, I think we've both dabbled in it a little bit, but we really are mainly focused on traveling nurses and other medical professionals. So for insurance clients, when did you start focusing on those clients and how are you attracting insurance clients to your MTRs? So my first client that I ever got 
for an insurance claim actually came from Airbnb. And I can almost guarantee anybody that has an Airbnb will get this at a certain point in their Airbnb career, where they'll have a relocation specialist reach out to them on Airbnb and say, hey, we're looking for a family, yada, yada, yada. So I had that happen to me in 2016. In 2016, I realized I had this fantastic guest. They paid $6,000 a month for six months through Airbnb. And I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. Here's where I went wrong. And this is what I want everybody to kind of take from this. I had that, that client stay there for six months at the beginning of 2016. They left and I was like, man, that'd be cool to get more of those. And then I just went on with my life, not thinking about the insurance claims. Then I had another person reach out to me again through Airbnb. And I thought to myself, like, why am I not creating a relationship just like I did with the hospital? So at that point in my life, right at the end of 2016, I got that other claim and I started creating a relationship. And her name was Christine. And she kind of gave me the lowdown on what insurance claims are looking like and why they need them so much. So I really just kind of dove into creating a relationship with her. I did everything that I did in my healthcare job. So I sent her like lunch. I had meetings with her and back then this is when Skype was around. I don't, they didn't have Zoom back then. So I actually got in a Skype call. She was from North Carolina. So we had a conversation about like, you know, how to handle the business, what kind of clients she looks for, how I can help her. So that's kind of where my brain went. It was automatically to how can I help, you know, Christine build, you know, find a quality housing. And keep in mind, there was not a bunch of Airbnbs at that time. There wasn't a lot of people that had homes. There wasn't corporate housing by owner, which is out now. So they were really relying on Airbnb to supply them with, with clients. But Airbnb, you guys know that you have to pay service fees and there's all kinds of stuff added on top of that. So that was my first introduction to a taste of what insurance claims could be. And the second go round, I you know, realize like I need to like focus on this by creating a relationship. And I know it sounds very cliche, like creating a relationship, but in fact, it's one of the easiest things to do. And it's the, it's one of the most overlooked things to do, especially with any business you need to have sales, customer service support. Those are exactly what we're doing when we're talking to these companies. So I don't think it sounds cliche at all because one thing I tell people when we talk about midterm rentals after I listen to your Bigger Pockets episode is I tell people travel nurses is a lot of sitting back waiting for them to come to you. And one thing that you do really amazing is you go get the clients and you go out and you make it happen. And that's the difference. That's why you're so successful is because you're out creating these relationships, sending lunch, doing all these extra things that the next person is just sitting on furnish finder, hoping the bookings roll in. And that's a crazy difference. Totally. Yeah. 100% game changer. And I think this is where the market is going to go. What we're, what you just talked about right now, Grace, I think that a lot of people are going to start doing this. I think they're going to try to understand this in a different way. And especially as more saturation comes into the market, even in rural areas, you're going to start seeing people, you know, right now, interest rates are 7% or higher. It's hard to find a cash flowing property that will even work as a long-term rental right now. So people are going to get more creative. There are cities that are outlawing you know, short-term rentals or putting restrictions or regulations together. So as more and more of those things happen, you're going to see more and more people heading over to the medium-term rental space. And yes, you're 100% right. At the end of the day, we are all just like employees of Brian Chesky, you know, Verbo or even Brian Payne of Furnished Finder. Because if we're just listing, waiting for people, we're not creating anything for ourselves. I just had a, I posted the other day about San Bernardino County that just closed all Airbnbs for like nine hours. Can you imagine if you had a brick and mortar business and all of a sudden the city comes in and is like slaps the thing on the door and is like, sorry, you guys can't open your business for, you know, you're losing money on that. Like I'd be furious if that was me. And a lot of people just chalked it up. Like this is a part of being Airbnb. Like this is how it is. I'm just like, how is this normal in any way? Like what other business would this be okay? in? like, how is this part of regular okayness? I just, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, but for me going on creating those relationships, I'm actually creating a business that I could sell outside of my actual real estate at one point. And I think that's the thing that separates from what I do to everybody else is that I'm actually creating a book of business that could be sold with my actual real estate. 
And that book of business can actually be worth more than the actual physical real estate. If you know if you do it long enough and you have enough clients and you have enough contacts that are automatically going to send you referrals. And that's what we have now. And again, this is eight years of making, you know, in the making. So it's something that took me a while. There's a lot of things that I learned, but a hundred percent, everything goes back to relationships. So speaking of relationships, some things that our listeners can take away from this is what are your like top three ways that you're finding these insurance clients and then like making those relationships with them? I'm going to go back to the first initial contact. Like I can almost guarantee that a lot of your audience has had an insurance company contact them already. Amelia, you probably have. Grace, you probably have through Airbnb. But again, most people will just take that booking and be like, oh, this is amazing. And then let it go. You know, once that three months is gone or whatever it is. So I urge everybody to really think about creating relationships from that initial contact and just do what I just talked about. Like, you know, send them lunch, ask who's sitting next to them, uh, get lunch from them, order them Starbucks, get their emails, their phone numbers, their 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 first and last name. That's how you want to start building. You start building a business is you start showing value. You start doing something that is unreasonable hospitality, which is doing something that people aren't necessarily expecting. And I think that that's part of sales too. And at the end of the day, like we're selling what we have to other people. And that's where it's where it can, can become difficult for a lot of people, which came natural to me because that's what I did already for, for years, right? So I think it's just something about being able to provide value for people and learning those ideas. And they're called relocation specialists. Those are what the insurance claims adjusters are called or insurance claims providers are called. So I just like will seek them out. I'll look on Indeed. I'll look on Monster Jobs. I'll actually try to find these folks that are working for these companies and go after them and just create relationships or try to, because that's the goal at the end of the day. Do you use ALE solutions at all? Yeah. So what ALE Solutions is, so just for everybody forgets context, they're like, say I have farmer's insurance and my house burns. Farmer's insurance, they'll send an adjuster out. The adjuster will take a look at the property. You know, they'll do an investigation to make sure I didn't cause the fire myself, right? Because that happens all the time, by the way. And just so you guys know too, every 88 seconds in the US, somebody loses their home due to a fire flood or some kind of catastrophic event. So these happen often. And the goal again is to create those, try to connect those relationships, try to connect with those individuals and really figure out, you know, what's the best possible way. So yeah, I use ALE Solutions. They're they're the middle person that goes between all these different carriers and they have all the big boy contracts, again, like uh, farmers, like progressive. And then they will go and try to find housing like really quick for those families. Um, the actual insurance company that's handling that necessarily doesn't, ALE Solutions will. So they have the biggest network, which is why a lot of people use them. And you can go to their website and apply to have your house listed there. And just type it in the Google search bar, like ALE solutions, list your home and something will pop up to list. But again, you're just throwing your name into a bucket of all the other names when you do that. So it's really something to think about as you're building your business, like actually going after these companies, if that's the time and energy you have to do that, because you can't just do it for a minute, stop. You have to like literally think about it like a business and give yourself six months to a year of actually continuing to reach out, connect these relationships because it doesn't happen overnight for most people. Um, yeah. One question I have, because we get this a lot, is like people are like, how do I find these insurance like insurance contracts? And we always say like, well, one thing could be just reach out to your own insurance agent and they'll be able to set you up with their relocation specialist. Is that valid? Like, do you find that to be accurate? Yeah, it's not valid. That's it. I think a lot of people have that idea that that's possible. But what happens is these adjuster will then send that. It's like it kind of goes in the abyss and then they're, they don't actually take care of these things internally. It goes to like these other third party companies and whoever accepts that and takes that, then it'll go to them. The adjusters can kind of give you, I actually have received a couple claims from adjusters. Um, and the reason why I got these, and this is important for everybody to realize too. I actually was at a BNI meeting and these are all over the US. BNI is like this US national thing. It's called business networking. I forget what the I stands for industries or something like that. And it's where business owners go to meet 
like once a week or once a month. And I met an insurance adjuster in one of those things. And he kind of started giving me the rundown. He told me that like, you know, they don't do that, but they do sometimes we'll have a claim where somebody like needs to get a house right away. And they, if they know somebody, they will place them, they'll like give them the heads up. So you'll definitely want to talk to adjusters rather than like, if you've called an office right now, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. You'd have to talk to an actual adjuster. And a lot of times those adjusters are actually out in the field. So that's what I would suggest. But I think the best way to go around that is to not connect with somebody in your market. It's to rather just like go on Indeed or Monster Jobs or LinkedIn and try to find relocation specialists that way. Then there's like hundreds of these companies out there. There's not just one big one like ALE Solutions. There's a ton of them. CRS, Dan Housing. There's another one called Temporary Housing. There's CHBO, Corporate Housing by Owner. Like those are all really good opportunities there. Corporate Housing by Owner is a paid subscription. And that's where a lot of these vendors go look for properties. So that's a good spot for everybody to kind of go look to start off. And when it comes to insurance claim housing, do you have a rule of thumb for pricing your housing? Do you use the 25% rule? I've heard people say that. Yeah, I can be, I'm going to be super honest right now with the percentages and, and things like that. There's not a real percentage number when it comes to insurance claims. Every single person has what's called loss of D coverage. And if their coverage is different, everybody buys a, a certain package with their with their insurance. And and the, this is the thing that sucks about insurance is that they don't always, representatives aren't always like very open about what these claims and these things do. So you could buy like a really good insurance, but have a low loss of D coverage. And what, what that coverage does, it'll actually cover, if you were to lose your complete property, they'll give you like say 10% of the value of the home or 1% of the value of the home. And everybody's different. So it's super hard to actually have a logical number. And this is where it becomes like a negotiation. So like when I talk to an adjuster or a relocation specialist, say I have a three bedroom, two bath, they'll ask me how much my property is. I'll shoot up high. Like I'll start at like say my market rent is 2K, I'll start at 10 grand. And they'll have to be like, well, that's way too high for us. And I'll say like, okay, well, what does the claim actually look like? Because then I have other properties that I can potentially put you in. So if they go and they say like, you know, we have a family that's in three different hotel rooms and I'll ask like, what hotel are they staying in? If they tell me they're staying at the Hilton, that's $200 a night or $300 a night. And they're in three different rooms. So that's three times nine is what is that? That's $900 a day. You do 900 times 30 days. What is that? Like, I'm not good at math, 27,000. So that's where my brain will go is like, okay, if they have, if they're looking at this already, there's 20, 7,000. So then there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do 10. So it's like, you kind of have to like check mark these little boxes in your head. You got to ask questions to be able to formulate an answer. And I think that that's where it gets confusing to people is like, how much do I charge? Start a pie and let them kind of give you a, a price range. And they don't always do that. Then they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to go to you and say, Hey, Amelia, like, yeah, we have a $10,000 budget. Like they want to try to get in as low as they can. In fact, the adjuster is the one that's actually giving the price. These relocation specialists are just like the middlemen between the adjuster, the family and you. Their job is just to find housing right away. So you kind of have to go in a negotiation stage with these folks. So I start high. I usually shoot for four to five X long-term rental rates. And then I work my way down. So I know that sounds crazy to think about, but it's 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 just such a shot in the dark. And it goes, it goes back to like what markets you're in, what the average price of the home is, you know, what the rents are in the market. That's really helpful to give you an idea like what you can actually make. Because like in San Francisco, you know, if we have a three bedroom, two bath, that's $6,500 a month. You know, we get claims there for 18000 which is freaking crazy. But for most people around the world, they're like, 18,000, that's ridiculous because a 3-2 is $6,500, you know, to rent per month. I mean, that's not even 3x, the, you know, that's not even 4x the long-term rental rate. So again, it just goes back to the price of the property, the claim that they have, their coverage that they have. And it's so variable depending on the on the clients. I think people get scared to ask for that much money because they don't realize like, 
they actually do have a leg up on the adjuster in a in a way like there aren't that many MTRs out there that are set up well for families and so they they price themselves low because they're just so excited to get this contract when really they're missing out on thousands of dollars yeah well there's two things to that because if I was starting today I'd probably want to get a lower amount first so I can just kind of get in with in the door there's so many people that are learning about this now partly probably because I was on bigger pockets talking about <laughs> talking about this I mean it's becoming a thing like more and more people are realizing like okay there's opportunities here but also you know it just it is a crazy environment it's just hard to actually pinpoint what a property can make but yeah people are scared and what's the worst that can happen so that they say no and or I can't do that and that's okay like nobody's gonna die right so just go ahead and ask don't be scared <laughs> are you having them sign this is a technical question. Yeah. Do you have the tenants sign the lease with you or the insurance company? And then are you getting payment upfront or monthly? That's a good question. And it really just depends. So I can tell you now that we have relationships with these companies and these individual people, like we'll actually get paid up front. Like I posted videos on Instagram where, you know, we get like a $34,000 check and it's for three months up front. So yeah, you can do either one. I like to ask for a letter of intent, which is basically saying that they're going to pay for the client that's there and a letter of responsibility stating that they're going to be able to handle if the client jacks up my house, the agency is actually going to pay. And keep in mind, like I have that childhood trauma, right? For my parents, like losing a bunch of homes. So that was kind of like my brain processing things as I became an adult. Like I want to have people pay and assume responsibility for these properties ahead of time. And you can ask insurance companies this. And I've found that if there's not a lot of properties in your market that are able to handle these kinds of claims, they will actually allow you to do that. But if they have a lot of different people to pull from, they're going to choose somebody that doesn't want a letter of responsibility or doesn't want a letter of intent. So it kind of really, it kind of, it depends on your market and how much property there is. And keep in mind, these relocation specialists, Amelia, are reaching out to literally everybody. So they're going to reach out to me. They're going to reach out to you. They're going to reach out to Grace. They're going to reach out to all these other people. And whoever responds the quickest, whoever gives them a better deal, whoever has the the certain criteria, like if they allow pets, if they don't allow pets, those are, are, are variables, even bathtubs. Like this is one thing that I learned over the years. I would have these families come walk the home. And if they saw that I had two showers in there and there was no bathtub, they would actually not want to take my property because of a bathtub. So they had two-year-old or a four-year-old that they bathed in the bathtub. So just small things that you wouldn't think about, even steps going into a home. Like that wasn't, that was issues several times because we had elderly people that needed to go into the house. So there's a lot of criteria that I look at now when I'm buying property that's specific to insurance claims. It's more of like a well-rounded property as opposed to, you know, something I think is a good deal. So speaking of midterm rental industry, where do you think things are going for you in the future? And where do you think things are going for the industry in the future? For me, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I think yeah, right you, now- Yeah, you did say it before this call, you're trying to figure your life out. <laughs> so I yeah. guess that was a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think here's, here's I'm going to be super honest. And, and this is one thing that like, I'm a mentor. Most people in the coaching and business world are going to act like they have everything figured out. Like they know exactly what they're doing. They have this mission and plan. The truth is nobody fucking knows what they're doing at all. They're trying to figure it out as they go. These professionals are trying to figure it out as they go. And if they're telling you that they already know, like they're full of crap, like everybody's learning. So that's me being super transparent. I don't know where I'm going to go in this space. Like, I think there's a lot of different avenues for me to go and I haven't decided which one I'm, I'm going to choose yet, but I'm going to continue to build more properties. I'm going to continue to educate more people and get out there to let them know how to do this. Cause this is what essentially helped me build a career when I didn't think any of this was even possible. So that's cool. And I'm just like a regular dude. Uh, I didn't even graduate high school. Mm -hmm. 
Like I literally didn't graduate high school. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like I don't, I'm embarrassed to say this out loud, but the truth is like, I didn't graduate high school. Like I just didn't have that mentality to sit in a class and, and listen. Like I just, I wasn't good at that. Like I probably have mm -hmm. ADD or something. I probably should, probably should go see somebody about that. But <sighs> I, I, and I, the reason why I bring this up and I'm not really ashamed of it now is because I, I worked my ass off for a lot of years. I got a good job. You know, I was making a $200,000 salary for somebody who didn't graduate high school, which is freaking crazy. But the one thing that I had it was I had the ability to be able to talk to people have them like know and trust me that was just one mm -hmm. thing that I learned like as a child very early on and that was the one skill that essentially helped me build you know this million dollar business and I think that a lot of people have that in them and a lot of people are aren't necessarily you know they don't have to go the nine to five or the you know the the college route and I'm not an anti-college person I think that college is like my daughter's 19 like I'm telling her to go to college right <laughs> uh, but I don't think it's for everybody I think that there is people that can build something or it might not necessarily feel like college is the right thing for them and to really be able to build something so you know I, I really want to be more vocal about this because I think it's something that you know a lot of people feel like they have to do. In fact, I had a lot of friends that went to school, got these degrees, and they were working at Starbucks, like with a degree, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm just like, I was making more than them without even a high school diploma, but just having a one skill of being able to like talk to people was able to, you know, help me kind of get to the to the certain point. So I think that for me is really and I tell this to my kids all the time, like be able to connect with people. If there's one thing you could do in your life, just be able to connect with people, be able to, you know, have conversation, make people like you. And I know that sounds weird to have like, you know, to tell people to like them, but like, I'll give you guys a quick example. And this is an easy way to have people like you. Like my son, who's, who's, uh, he's 10 years old. I tell him when he goes to school, like take a big piece of big league chew and hand it out to every single person around you and just so watch bribery. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of, again, you're doing something. This goes back to the re unreasonable hospitality. I was telling you guys, it's doing something that people don't expect. How many times do you get handed something from somebody like a piece of gum and you're just like, Oh, cool. Like, thanks. Like this came out of nowhere. This is awesome. Well, guess what happens when some bully's picking on you in the yard and you gave somebody that gum while back there, you might go up there and be like, dude, what's going on? Like this guy gave me gum, leave him alone. I'm just kidding. He probably won't say that. But again, those kinds of thoughts like compounded over time. It's just like, you're creating something that people are going to like you, even if it's just giving something to somebody as simple as a piece of gum. And I really want my kids to understand that too. It's about kind of service in a way where we're trying to have that reciprocal give or take relationship. And I think that, you know, being a kid and growing and building a business is hard. And if you can do little things that can help you improve, and if it's something as simple as giving a stick of 25 cent big league chew or, you know, Wrigley's like that. I mean, that, that's really how you build relationships. And it's something so simple, but we just overcomplicate it as humans because that's that's what we do, right? I was going to say one thing. You said that a lot of people have that skill, but a lot of people don't. Like, I really think it sets you apart if you can build that no like, and trust factor. And don't write that off. Like, if that's one of your skill sets, that's a big skill set that you have. So some people have it and some people don't. I think people can learn that, though. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I Yes, I, I disagree with you. I think you can learn it to an extent. Mm -hmm. and, and then I think that some people can't. I have some people in mind. Yeah, I, say, I feel like you're thinking of specific people. I agree that some people just don't have that charisma yeah. to use as a base to build the no like and trust but i agree that you can always work on it yeah yeah totally not only that but like everybody's so unique like we're all creatives in our own way like realistically in real life like grace you probably have stuff that uh, are super creative about you that nobody knows about amelia you probably have the same thing anybody all of our audience listening right now is probably creative to a certain extent and you might not even think you are but and i think this is where be, being like an authentic truthful person that's what is relatable to a lot of people and a lot of times again going back to what i talked about earlier like people that are gurus in the space like act like they know everything and that draws people 
people, right? But if you're transparent, open, honest, being like, dude, I'm figuring this out. Like I'm trying to figure this out. You know, I want to grow. Like I want you to grow. Like I'm trying to figure these things out together. I think those are important things to have. Again, those are what build transparency with people. That's how somebody will start to, rel- uh, you know, look at you and be like, okay, cool. Like I resonate with uh, Grace or Amelia because mm-hmm. they're like the same, right? And then all of a sudden you start kind of bringing other, other things that shift their mind and to think in a different way. And I think that's the biggest difference between somebody that's successful and somebody that's not successful is that mind shift in, you know, how can I be different? How can I be better? How can I look at things more of like a sales atmosphere? I might not be good at this, but how do I learn about it? And I've watched people even that I grew up with that are, you know, that I have some friends now and hopefully they're not listening to this, but they still live with their parents. Like they're eating Hot Pockets in the basement, like, and they still have the mindset of like being in high school. Like we like exactly what we did, you know, being idiots, drinking beer in the freaking middle of a forest somewhere. Like that's what we did. And they're still doing that stuff. They just never got to those people that gave them that answer or they didn't want that. They didn't pick up books and try to figure out new things. That's the biggest difference between a successful person and unsuccessful person is literally just like surrounding yourself with the right people, getting a different taste of what's out there, having a different mindset, adapting to different situations. And not only that, but wanting to be better, like wanting to be better. And and I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to be around people that have that, that have that kind of gift and that are wanting to share it. And it's like, we can go on YouTube right now and like pick this shit up for free. You know, it's crazy. So there's no excuses for anybody. I'm sorry. (laughs) So speaking of YouTube and being an influencer, I'm curious, what does your 19 year old daughter and your 10 year old son and what other kids you might have, like, think about you being an influencer? Do they love it? Or they're like, oh my God, dad. Well, I brought them to, I had a midterm rental summit. I'm upset you guys didn't show up to that still. So um, <laughs> we'll have another one and we'll, we'll definitely. We'll you, I can't believe you guys didn't go to that. I was so pissed when I saw you guys were not, you guys weren't coming. Um, but when they, <laughs> I forgive you. I forgive you. When they went to that, I think they realized like, holy crap, my dad is like onto something. And I think that, you know, them seeing 400 people in a room, just like kind of like open their eyes, like anything is possible. And I think that's what I was told a lot, Grace and Amelia, when I was a kid that I could do anything that I wanted to. Like literally I could do anything I wanted to if I put my mind to it, my energy. My mom told me that all the time. Like you can do whatever you want. Like, you know, my mom migrated from Mexico to here. So like having that mentality of like, ah, I could do anything I want. Like my mom came here, created a life. Like my parents bought these houses and then lost them all. Like I could do that too. And I was born here and have the ability to do stuff here. So I think it was burned into my brain. Maybe it's like an immigrant mentality that I had passed down to me, but I truly feel that anybody here can do anything they want. Like literally. So I tell my kids that all the time. And I feel weird calling myself an influencer. Like that sounds so weird to me. (laughs) Yeah. I actually think that's so true because my parents actually used to say that to me as well. Like you can do, you can be whoever you want and do whatever you want. And we just hosted a retreat with a bunch of women. And one of the women there was like saying, her mom always told her that as well. So we don't have kids, Grace and I, but like mm-hmm. if you have kids and you're listening, make sure you start like saying that to them because I really think there's something behind that. Yeah, there's that empowering like, you know, when you're I think the thing with when you're kids, like you always want and I watch this like I'm a parent. So I see this kids always want their parents attention. Like my son who's 10 will do something like dad watch. And it's like could be the dumbest thing where he's just throwing a ball against the wall. <laughs> Like they just want to be seen, right? Heard. And like, I think that the, you being able to show your kids like, Hey, you're able to do something like I'm showing you guys. I'm able to do something. I remember when my kids found out I didn't graduate high school. Like I told them and they were just like, you didn't go to high school. Like, how do you have these houses? Like the thought process behind that was like, how the fuck are you able to do anything? Like (laughs) what the hell happened to you? First off, why didn't you graduate? And it was dumb stuff. Like I ditched school. It wasn't like some crazy reason. Like I literally just didn't have enough credits. I didn't go take the extra credit. Like I could have just went and did stuff and I didn't. I'm an idiot for doing that. You were too busy drinking in a forest somewhere that's exactly what i was doing what what an idiot and i blame my parents for like 
if there's no reason if your kids fail like it's a parent's fault i'm blaming my parents for that but maybe my parents had a different idea of like hey dude like this guy's gonna do something else and maybe school is not like you now yeah but i mean again i'm very lucky i'm very blessed in a way and that's uh i mean that's all i can say about that my kids i try to give them as much as i can as far as they have the ability to do anything they want truthfully Mm -hmm. so jesse last question what is one crazy goal you have we touched on the fact that you're not sure what direction you're going, but if you could throw one out there into the universe, what would it be? Yeah, actually, after I'm listening to this right now, this interview makes me sound like a freaking maniac. Uh, I didn't go to college. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think for me, my goal, the biggest goal that I that I can have, I know this sounds crazy, like financial goals like aren't really a thing to me. Like, yeah, it's cool to make money. Money is great, but I get more pleasure out of watching people do something and be successful rather than like a dollar amount in my bank account. I know that might sound dumb. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because for me, I just want to have a lot of people reaching out to me saying like, dude, I listened to your stuff and I did this or I watched your YouTube videos and now I created this and now I have this and I was able to leave my job. So like for me, that's kind of where my goal is, uh, is to continue to educate, continue to, to give to people and just to have those you know messages that come through on like, hey, like your videos helped me change my life and things like that. But my goal too really is to have like a billion doors and, and make a bunch of money and uh, have financial wealth and to have wealth for my kids and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, again, it's, it's a mixed bag of all those things. I don't necessarily have any grandiose goals, but I would like to not have to worry about, like we talked about earlier, like me doing all these things. Like, I think that's part of the grind right now. It's me trying to figure stuff out. But yeah, I'd like to have, you know, a couple hundred doors, contracts all over the place, not have to worry about those things anymore and then just be automatic. Okay. Thank you for all of that. Now, everyone who's listening, also, I want to say you don't sound like a maniac. You're probably (laughs) one of the smartest people I've heard and definitely probably my favorite Bigger Pockets episode. So you did amazing. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you're listening, it's a big deal. Jesse's on this podcast. So thank you. We're trying to play it cool. We're we're trying to play cool. (laughs) Oh, hey, Jesse. What's up? Nice to see you again. But anyways, where can everybody follow you, learn more about your mentorship, whatever it is you have going on? Yeah, definitely. You guys can check out, first off, I would say my YouTube channel. So you can just go to the search bar and type in Jesse Vasquez. I should pop up there, even though it is like one of the most common Hispanic names on the planet Earth. And you guys can find me at the real Jesse Vasquez on Instagram, because again, that is the most common Hispanic name on the planet Earth, besides <laughs> I think like Jose and, and Jesus. But um, yeah, you guys can find me there. And there's I have a bunch of free game on there, a ton of information. It can definitely get you started in the space, you know, to kind of move forward and, and build a midterm rental business. So I yeah. appreciate you uh, ladies for having me on. This has been great. Yeah, I'm thinking about like, oh my God, this like, do I sound like a maniac in this? In this no, episode? no, you don't. And we'll have everything linked in the show notes too. So we'll make it really easy for people to find you. But thank you so much for being on Jesse. And Holy. we'll come to the next MTR summit. You better. Definitely. I'll show up at your guys' house if not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.